Well, here in Atlanta, we're used to law firms that advertise. Just drive around Interstate 285 and you'll see a whole smorgasbord of billboards promoting legal services. One call, that's all. Ted Nugent. Helping Georgia families. Motlick and Associates. For the people. You know who that is. Morgan and Morgan. But there are other lawyers who advertise, and some of them do it in a quite humorous and revealing fashion. Here's a billboard. MyBaldLawyer.com. Injured? Don't pull your hair out. That's pretty clever. As is this one. Ever argue with a woman? (laughs) Hey, attorney Stephanie May may just have a point. I think I might give her a call the next time I need one. Or what about Larry Archie's ad? Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. (laughs) Now, wow, that kind of logic can come in handy for some people. And here's another billboard based on fuzzy logic. We have a billboard. We're kind of a big deal. Are you kidding? Why does having a billboard mean that you're a good lawyer? Here's another one. Trust me, I'm a lawyer. My dogs do. Oh boy. Because your dog trusts you, I have to as well. You must be an honest person. Your dog trusts you. And speaking of honesty, you got to love this one. This is attorney Ruth Warner. She boasts, an honest attorney but not honest enough to hurt your case. She's just being honest. But here's the point behind a lawyer advertising his or her services. If you're facing a trial, often the merits of your case, whether you're guilty or innocent, may not be enough to determine the outcome. It's not if you're guilty or not, it's whether you have a skilled attorney. I've heard it said The American judicial system doesn't determine innocence and guilt, but who has the best lawyer? And that's not only true of modern-day America, it was also the case in first-century Israel. This is why when the Jewish hierarchy came to Caesarea to prosecute their charges against Paul, they came with a high-priced attorney. His name was Tertullus. He was the Perry Mason, the Ben Matlock. He was the Jack McCoy of first century Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Tertullus had billboards all over Jerusalem that read, don't let them rule us, hire Tertullus. Probably not. I just made that up, but sounds pretty good. And this is where we pick it up here in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders. Notice, even though Caesarea is north of Jerusalem, we're told that the high priest's entourage came down. Remember, Jerusalem is up in the mountains. Thus, to go anywhere from Jerusalem is to descend or go down. And at the time, the high priest, the czar of Judaism, was a man 80 years old, named Ananias, that an octanagerian willingly 
made a 65-mile trip over rugged terrain is proof of just how much he and all the Jews hated Christianity's spokesman, Paul. And coming with Ananias was his hired gun, his legal eagle, a certain orator named Tertullus. Tertullus was a professional orator, similar to a modern-day trial lawyer. You know, once the Stanford Research Institute, they tested how various professions affected a person's perspective. The first interviewee was an engineer. He was asked the question, what does two plus two make? Being trained in the exactness of mathematics, the engineer responded. He said, well, in absolute terms, four. Well, the second interviewee was an architect. He was asked, what does two plus two make? Due to the creativity of the architect in his craft, his reply was elaborate. He said, well, there's several possibilities. Two plus two makes four, but so does three and one, and so does even two and a half plus one and a half. Well, the final interviewee was a lawyer. The researcher asked him, he said, what does two plus two make? Well, the lawyer kind of gets up, walks over, shuts the door behind him, pulls the blinds closed. And then he kind of leans into the researchers and he whispers, well, you tell me, what do you want two plus two to make? Sad to say, lawyers have the reputation for bending the truth. And such was the case with this lawyer, Tertullus. Tertullus was skilled in rhetoric. He was a master of verbal deception. He could flatter a judge and obscure the facts and dress up a lie. He was slick. He was shrewd. He was a definite truth bender. And he had been hired by the Jews to present their case against the apostle Paul. We're told these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And and, and I got to say this. Just let me say, I'm being a little hard on lawyers this morning, and I I need to be careful here. Uh, I want to apologize. As many of you know, my daughter-in-law is a lawyer who I love very, very dearly. I have good friends, good friends, even in the congregation this morning, I have very good friends that are lawyers. So please, I'm not saying that lawyers can't be kind and honest and moral people. They certainly can be. We all need to remember, lawyers have feelings too, allegedly. (laughs) Verse (laughs) 2. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. And here is where we need pockets on the back of the seats in front of us so we can pull out our air sickness bags Because this is nauseous. This makes you want to puke. Tertullus claims that Governor Felix had brought peace and prosperity to Judea. To the contrary, this Roman governor was corrupt and brutal toward the Jews. Marcus Antonius Felix was the only Roman procurator to ever rise to his position from the ranks of slavery. 
But though Felix climbed in status, he stayed the same in stature. He was a brutish and an uncouth person. In fact, Tacitus, the famous Roman historian, said of Felix, he had the power of a king and the mind of a slave. Felix was anything but what Tertullus called him, noble. But Tertullus continues, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words. You just hear the schmooze in all of that. For we have found this man a plague, literally a pest, he calls Paul, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He paints Paul as a gang leader. There's the Bloods and the Crips and the Nazarenes. Here's another first century name, by the way, given to the followers of Jesus. They were called Nazarenes, named after Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. But this was actually a derogatory term. Since Nazareth was a hick town, Nazareth was a backwoods, sort of off-the-beaten-path kind of place, this would be like calling the Christian community rednecks or swamp people. Tertullus actually begins laying out the charges against Paul in verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Tertullus' first words to Felix are an outrageous lie. Rather than defile temple protocol, Paul had wanted to placate the Jews by observing their law and by participating in a temple-approved ritual. He says, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Again, talk about a rewrite of history. The Roman commander had stepped in only when the situation had turned violent. He rescued Paul from a Jewish mob. Instead, Tertullus paints the Jews as peaceful and law-abiding and Lysias as the agitator. It was just the opposite. In fact, he goes on to blame Lysias for forcing everyone to make this cumbersome trip to Caesarea. The Jewish leaders, they would have handled the Paul situation on their own and spared everyone this unnecessary trial here in Caesarea. By stepping into the fray, Lysias had ended up commanding his accusers to come to you, Tertullus says. And then he goes on in verse 8, by examining him, Yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. After his opening remarks, Tertullus probably called witnesses to the stand who then perjured themselves. Tertullus was a slimeball lawyer at work. He rests his case thinking that Paul's goose is cooked. Verse 10. Then Paul after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you do have, you, inasmuch as, you, as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Now, Paul knew that Felix had been around the block a time or two with these Jews. He wasn't naive to their ways. He had been governor over Palestine for seven years now from 52 to 59 AD. And Paul is thankful for his longevity. He says, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Tertullus had been long on style but short on substance. The Jews had their accusations but no real evidence to back it up. It was all false testimony, Paul says. Now Paul, the defense, is going to present his case. And he begins. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. And here we get an insight as to how first century Christianity was perceived. The Jews at the time considered Christianity a sect or a branch of Judaism. Most Jews would have considered it a heretical branch of Judaism, but a Jewish sect nonetheless. Paul, on the other hand, notice, he refers to Christianity as the way. Jesus wasn't a sect. He wasn't one of many sections or small slice of something bigger. No, Jesus is the way. He's the only way for all men to relate to God. Paul goes on to explain his faith. He says, Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, Paul would not have labeled himself a former Jew, but a fulfilled Jew. Nothing he had believed contradicted the Old Testament or his Hebrew heritage. He believed all things written in the law and the prophets. Paul's faith in Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. You remember, Jesus had said as much back in Matthew chapter 17, or chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Never did Jesus nullify or contradict Judaism. He simply took it a step further. The work of Jesus completed the Old Testament imagery. Jesus is the new temple. He is the perpetual priesthood. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the author of a better covenant. He's the fulfillment of all the prophet's predictions. And then verse 16, he says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Remember, this was how he opened his defense before the Sanhedrin back in chapter 23. You know, before the high priest had illegally had him punched in the mouth. Paul had always sought to keep his conscience clean. And here he gives his version, a truthful version of the temple riot. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Paul wasn't the instigator who stirred up this mob. He had come to the temple reverently, worshipfully, to participate in a rite of purification. What created the mob were the false accusations of the Jews. They claimed that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, but with absolutely no evidence for such. In fact, no one even tries to stand up here at this trial and testify to such a thing, lest they be humiliated in the cross-examination. 
Paul goes on calling out Tertullus' lack of witnesses. He says, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. He baits anybody to stand up who could substantiate these claims. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now here, Tertullus must have believed that he had met his match. For Paul, too, was a shrewd debater. A good number of the Jews accusing Paul, remember, were Pharisees who believed in a physical resurrection of the body. Now Paul insists that he's being condemned for the same belief, the resurrection. How can the Pharisees denounce Paul for holding a belief to which they themselves ascribed? It was hypocrisy on their part. Of course, the original charge against Paul wasn't his belief in the resurrection of all, just his resurrection, the resurrection of one, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet Paul here shrewdly frames his case so it becomes impossible for the Pharisees to condemn him without also condemning themselves. And this is how Paul got off the hook, remember, back in chapter 23 in Jerusalem. He goes to the well one more time, you could say. He's gaining experience in getting out of tight squeezes. Verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. It's interesting that Felix had some prior knowledge of Christianity. We're told later that his wife was Jewish. His information may have come from her. Felix here wants to hear from the commander who initially dealt with the disturbance. Sadly, there's no record of Lysias ever coming to court. So Felix commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. This was wonderful. Paul was placed under house arrest in Caesarea where he will live for the next two years. During that time, he can entertain friends, we're told. He can speak to small groups. He can disciple believers. His fellow Christians can visit him and bring him food and supplies. This was a great deal for Paul. Rather than a cold, dank prison, God gives Paul a two-year expense-paid stay in the beautiful seaside coastal town of Caesarea. And after three long, rigorous missionary journeys, trust me, God is supplying Paul a little rest and relaxation. This is exactly what he needs. This is Paul's siesta before his final lap. And these two years in Caesarea will provide Paul's travel companion, Luke, the opportunity to do research and verification that went into his writings. You remember Luke was an educated man. He was a doctor and a historian. Based in Caesarea with Paul here, over the next two years, he'll be able to visit Nazareth and Galilee and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And like a good news reporter, Luke will be able to chase down the stories, run down the storylines, interview the witnesses. All over the countryside, Luke will conduct interviews with people who 25 years earlier were there firsthand to see the life and miracles and teachings of Jesus. 
Many of these eyewitnesses were still alive. And while based in Samaria, Luke, no doubt, spoke to Mary and to the shepherds and to Jesus' brothers. And he interviewed Peter and John and Nicodemus and the lame man who was healed, even officials in Pilate's court. Can you imagine Dr. Luke's interview with Lazarus? Wouldn't that have been interesting? And of course, Luke will take all of this research and he will compile them into two volumes, very important volumes for us. The Gospel of Luke and what we're reading here, the book of Acts. You remember both books were dedicated to a rich sponsor named Theophilus. In the opening of Luke's Gospel, he refers to Theophilus by the title, Most Excellent. This was a common label given to Roman officials, government officials. It's possible that Luke's gospel and its sequel, the book of Acts, were actually written as part of Paul's legal defense. Perhaps these were briefs intended to be presented before the Caesar in Rome. It's interesting, the New Testament's two longest books were actually legal briefs. And to me, this is all an amazing example of God's undeniable faithfulness. At first, Paul's trip to Jerusalem seemed like a disaster. And yet God used it to give Paul some needed rest and refreshment and to provide the church two of its greatest treasures down through the centuries. The book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. It's proof of the truth That Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I mean, here's a provocative thought. If Paul hadn't been detained for those two years in Caesarea, would we be reading the book of Acts today? And here's another provocative thought. Could it be that some of your current troubles... And inconveniences are being used by God to do a good thing in your life or in the life of others. Well, verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Felix's wife was a Jewish princess named Drusilla who came from a famous family. Her predecessors all played important roles in the New Testament narrative. Drusilla was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, the king who slaughtered all the male babies in Bethlehem while trying trying to kill Jesus. Her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, was the king who had John the Baptist beheaded and stood trial over Jesus in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, her father, Herod Agrippa I, was the one who had the apostle James beheaded. Agrippa I was the fellow who let the crowd praise him as God, you remember? And he was judged for his arrogance when the worms ate out his intestines. You remember that story? This Drusilla was the Kate Middleton, the Princess Catherine of her day. She was the star in the royal family. She was a Herodian born into the ruling class. And over the years, she had no doubt heard and seen and read a lot about Jesus. Now to have Paul, Christianity's leading spokesperson in her palace. What an opportunity this was for her. 
I'm sure she wanted to interview him. She probably had a notebook full of questions to ask. Felix and Drusilla were seekers. Now, it would have been interesting to hear what Paul would have said to Drusilla if it had just been her in the room. She was a Jew with a religious background. But instead, when he talks to her on this day, Paul is also speaking to Felix, who was a pagan Roman. He was probably speaking to a room full of pagan officials. And so he says in verse 25, Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, notice the content of Paul's message to Felix. This is so important here. For here is how Paul spoke to the heathen, to the pagans, to folks with no religious background. The kind of people that we're inclined to come in contact with in our everyday lives. Paul discussed three topics. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And here's what people today in our society need to grasp. Even before the gospel will make any sense to them. This is almost a pre-gospel gospel. Reminds me of the Christian who witnessed the folks in the bagel shop every morning. One day he struck up a conversation with a non-Christian couple. And he asked the woman, he said, what would you like for me to pray with you about? Well, this woman was taken back. She wasn't used to people asking to pray with her. After thinking for a few seconds, she said, well, health, I guess. Why don't you pray for my health? The fellow said, health? Why would you have me pray for that? Sooner or later, your health is going to go, no matter who prays for you. There must be something more important than that. Well, again, the lady was shocked. She thought, what's more important than my health? The Christian replied, what about your relationship with God? Why can't I pray with you about that? She replied, I never thought about that. And that's when her husband jumped in and said, you mean God is going to haul us into court or something? And if this couple had heard Paul's sermon to Felix, it would have addressed their ignorance. For they lack the knowledge that most people today lack. They know nothing of righteousness and nothing of self-control and nothing of the judgment to come. That yes, God is going to haul us all into court one day. Paul spoke of righteousness. That there is a right and that there is a wrong. You know, our society today has forgotten that, hasn't it? There is such a thing as absolute truth. There is a final authority. When it comes to right and wrong, we don't get to decide for ourselves. There is a God above us who is wiser than we are, who alone sets the standard. And self-control, that we are responsible for our thoughts and our actions. That we can't just live by impulse and do whatever feels good. No, God requires us to conform our behavior to his standards and exercise self-control. And finally, judgment the judgment to come. That one day, you and I will stand before the God who decides right and wrong. And how we lived, our self-control, will be evaluated and we will be judged accordingly. We'll have to give an account of our lives for how we treated 
people and how we lived. And we'll be either rewarded or punished. It's only after you understand these three pre-gospel truths that there is a right and wrong righteousness that we need to conform to God's standard self-control and that I will be held accountable for doing so at the judgment to come. Only then does the gospel become appealing to us. For you quickly realize that you've fallen short of God's standard and you deserve God's judgment. And that's when the news that Jesus lived a sinful, sinless life and he died in our place as our atonement and he suffered judgment for us. Suddenly that gospel becomes music to your ears and comfort to your soul. It's only when you get the first truths down that the gospel really makes sense and becomes appealing to your heart. So Paul's sermon on righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come. It should have stirred up Felix's heart and caused him to want to hear more. Instead, though, he becomes afraid. He's convicted, obviously, of his sin and his plight. For he orders Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Felix delays a decision to a more convenient time. And listen, it is never more convenient to come to Jesus than it is right now. You know, statistics say that 82% of all Christians come to Jesus before the age of 19 years old. And here's why. The more times you say no, the harder it is to say yes. You resist the Holy Spirit's call, and it causes a hardening of the spiritual arteries. And often the effects are irreversible. In a sense, commitment is never convenient. But it's imperative. Verse 25 tells us that Felix was afraid. Like a lot of people, he was afraid to relinquish control and surrender his life to the will of another. This is why salvation takes faith. Will you trust God with your life? That's what he requires, that we have faith. But Felix had an additional motive for delaying his dealings with Paul. Verse 26 Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Follow the money. Felix delayed closing Paul's case because he hoped for a bribe. And he probably saw that Paul had friends on the outside, wealthy friends. And he expected Paul to attempt to buy his own freedom at some point. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Evidently, Paul the Evangelist and Governor Felix had numerous conversations. You wonder how many and when and what did they talk about? Questions that we'd love answered. And yet apparently a more convenient time for Felix to do the right thing, to get right with God, never came up. That's why the most convenient time to come to Jesus is always right now. Well, chapter 24 ends. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. See, the preference for the Jews was for Paul to be put to death, but if they couldn't have their first choice, they'd just as soon watch him rot away in prison. And Governor Felix was happy to comply. Paul remained under house arrest for two whole years. Have you ever heard the expression, a political football. 
It refers to a a political issue that's continually debated but never resolved. It's an unpopular topic on which neither side of the debate really wants to take action. The decision gets punted back and forth, no one willing to take the ball and run with it. When the Roman governor Festus took over for his predecessor Felix, the apostle Paul had become a political football in the Roman court of Caesarea. Paul was a prisoner who had become a problem. After two years of investigation and conversation, Felix knew that Paul was innocent of any crimes against Rome. But politically speaking, what was he to do? If he released Paul, he would upset the Jews who Felix wanted to placate. If he condemned Paul, Felix could get into trouble with his superiors in Rome. For Paul was a Roman citizen, which meant he had legal rights. So like any good politician, what did Felix do? He punted. He kept Paul under house arrest and left his fate to be decided by his successor, this man named Festus. Acts 25 begins. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Porcius Festus was the 11th Roman procurator or governor of Judea. He ruled the region from 59 to 62 AD. It's interesting, Governor Festus took over the post at age 70. He ultimately died in office. And of course, earlier in life, Festus co-starred in a hit television series called Gunsmoke. And since most of you are not old enough to remember Gunsmoke, I just told a funny that very few of you laughed at, which is a common occurrence here at Calvary Chapel. As we mentioned, Felix had been corrupt and heavy-handed. He'd been a savage of a man, which meant the Jews had grown to resent his administration. And this is why Festus makes it his initial priority to repair the fractured relationship between Rome and the Jews in Jerusalem. Just three days after the new governor's arrival in Caesarea, he goes up to the holy city. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Remember back in chapter 23, 40 men had taken a vow not to eat until they'd murdered Paul. Now, two years later, these guys are really, really hungry. And once again, they concoct this assassination plot. It's amazing by now. Two high priests have come and gone since Paul's arrest. The old man Ananias is now dead. His successor Jonathan was murdered by Felix. A third priest, Ishmael, is now in power. But it doesn't matter who the priest is. The Jewish priority is the same. Their opposition of Christianity's spokesman, Paul, is still alive. You know, hate has an incredibly long shelf life. Verse 4 tells us, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. The new governor must have smelled a rat. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Festus insists on a trial. He's been briefed on the charges against Paul. But this is such a vital matter. He wants to hear the case for himself. 
And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now, American justice has rules forbidding double jeopardy, but not ancient Rome. And Paul is now back in court defending himself against the same charges he's been tried on earlier. Verse 7. Now, when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. All the Jews could do is throw up lies and false assumptions and accusations. The same flimsy case Tertullus had presented. They had no hard evidence. Paul was innocent of any wrongdoing. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now now understand, Paul was politically astute. He knew what was really happening here. After seven years of Felix's ruthlessness, the new governor needed to do whatever was necessary to win back Jewish favor. Governor Festus was new to the province. He might have sincerely thought that Paul could have gotten a fair trial in Jerusalem, but Paul knew better. A trial in Jerusalem would be a death sentence for Paul. The priests would do all they could to kill him if he went to Jerusalem. And thus Paul throws down the trump card he has had in his hand the whole time and yet has refused to use up until now. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen, and it was every citizen's right to appeal his case to Caesar. Verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. And if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, No one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, then to Caesar you shall go. And the new governor seals Paul's appeal. But ultimately this was God's decision. Apparently, God had gotten tired of watching his servant Paul get kicked back and forth like a political football. And here God concludes, enough is enough. He forces the hand of the new governor Festus to send Paul to Rome. You remember when Paul was first arrested in the temple, we're told in Acts 23 verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. It's interesting, Jesus had promised Paul that his ministry wouldn't end in Jerusalem. He'll eventually take the gospel to the capital of the empire, to the city of Rome. As far back as Acts chapter 19, Paul purposed in his heart that he also must see Rome. He knew God's itinerary for him included Rome. But I'm sure never in his wildest dreams did he think he'd make the trip in the manner that he did. For by appealing to Caesar... Paul will get the opportunity to preach the gospel to the emperor. And in addition, the whole trip, the food, the travel, the taxes, the duties, 
even the tips will be paid for by the Roman government. Isn't that amazing? Here's proof that the old saying is true. God often works in mysterious ways. Indeed, he does. And so next week, we'll cover Acts chapters 25, 26, and first part of 27.